All right. Hey, grab your message notes. Um, if you are watching online, you can find those at the website. Uh, but uh, grab your message notes as we jump in um, to our study of First Peter. But before we do that, what would you say if I told you that you were going to spend five months of your life, five months of your life waiting at a red light? five months of your life. That's right. This week, um, I did a little research on the internet, and so I know that all of this stuff is super true. Um, But I read, (laughs) there's a number of sites, I read that the average American will spend 4.9 of their almost on average 80 years of life behind the wheel, and five months of those will be at a stoplight or a stop sign. By the way, I also read that the average American drives about 750,000 thousand miles, which is a lot, uh, 750,000 miles in their lifetime, which is enough to uh, count for three trips um, to the moon. So yes, we do um, drive a lot and think about the price of gas for that. Um, The normal person will spend, I know we don't have normal people here, but the average person uh, will spend 28 years of life in bed nine years watching TV, three and a half years of your life is spent eating and drinking, and they say up to five years of your life, five years spent waiting in line. And that goes up way more if you spend any time at Disneyland. (laughs) This next one seems totally unfair, but I read it, so I'll share it with you. Uh, Most men will spend about eight months of their life, eight total months of their life, getting ready for the day in the morning. And it is more than double for women. I'm sorry about that. Uh, The average American spends less than, this is kind of sad, less than one and a half years exercising. But get this, and this is a conservative number. Based on uh, current statistics, the average person will spend about 15 years, almost 20% of their total life, on their smartphone. And so, yeah, I know, uh, we hear those things and we have a sense, um, kind of this uh, keen awareness that time matters. We hear those things and we think, well, man, I don't want to waste my life. Uh, We understand that time is significant. We wear these little devices on our wrist to help us measure time. I know some of you are thinking, I hope the pastor's sermon finishes on time, right? We have this kind of awareness of, um, well, you can pray about that, but no, we should be good. Um, You know that each trip around the sun is 365 days, five hours, and 49 minutes. That equals 7,866 hours, 525,949 minutes in a year, and we know that all of them matter, and all of them are a gift from God, and we don't want to waste time because we really believe that time matters. I actually love the quote from Moses in uh, Psalm 90. Moses writes this psalm, and this is what he says. It's almost a prayer. He says, God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we uh, should. Uh, William Penn actually has a quote too that says, "Uh, time is what we want the most, but what we use the worst. We want it the most, but we tend to use it the worst. Um, Henry David Thoreau on this idea of killing time says this, you can't kill time without injuring eternity. And so I bring all that stuff up about time because today we have a pretty big task to cover all of 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to see that one of the themes of this chapter, um, as you can guess, is this issue of time. 
In fact, one commentator I read on this suggested that Peter was probably thinking about the time of his life kind of ticking down, right, as he wrote this letter. Because Peter had a sense that his persecution was picking up, especially there in Rome where he likely wrote this letter. Peter had a sense that his time on life could be coming to a quick end. And so he was thinking to himself, how do I make the most of my life? And he wanted his readers, including those original readers, and us today to think about how are we investing our time. So that's what we're going to look at. Because we're doing the whole chapter today, um, we're going to kind of look at it in kind of three movements. So we're going to begin by talking about kind of this big uh, topic of how to make your time matter. And we're going to first of all talk about moving beyond old times, moving beyond our old times, then we're going to jump into making the most of these times that we are in, which are the last times, and then we're going to talk about being ready for hard times. So that's where we're going today. Uh, hoping, hopefully you have your Bible open. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes this. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because, whatever, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives. There's Peter thinking about how he's going to live the rest of his life. He says they don't live the rest of their early lives, earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather they live for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join in them with them in this, their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." And so that's kind of the first section we want to look at. And in this passage, one of the core realities we see about the Christian life, not just here, but throughout the New Testament, a core reality about your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, is what theologians call regeneration. Regeneration. That's kind of a fancy way of saying what Jesus said when he said a person is born again. When we place our faith in Christ, we become a new creation. Paul says it like this, the old is gone and the new has come. And so as we talk about this idea, we live with this idea that that we are regenerated. There's this sense that there are parts of our old pre-Christ life that we are supposed to not just leave behind, but there are things that we are supposed to put to death. Old times old sinful ways, we are to move on from them. And as we live this regenerated life that moves beyond our old ways, one of the things that we kind of pick up an attitude here is almost like a militant attitude towards overcoming sin. A militant attitude. Why do I say that? Because Peter says it like this, arm yourself with the same attitude as Christ. Arm yourselves. Obviously, that's a military term. It refers to a a soldier who's getting ready to go into battle. And if that soldier is going into battle, they want to arm themselves with everything that they have at their disposal, right? If you're going into this fight, you want to make sure that everything you have, you are using it. And so Peter says, arm yourself specifically with the... the, with the attitude of Christ. Gear up for the battle with the attitude of Christ. Now, the reality is, is that so many people these days, and really all days, want the blessings of following after Jesus, right? We love the blessings of the Christian life. We love the the peace. We love the purpose. We love the fellowship. We love all those things, and those are good, and they are real. But a lot of times, we kind of focus only on the blessings, and we forget that actually the Christian life calls us to radical changes 
including leaving behind old times. Don't be stuck in those old times. And so one of the ways Peter says you can do that is you put on the attitude of Christ. Now, when I think of the attitude of Christ, Paul talks about the attitude of Christ being an attitude of humility, and that's definitely true. But here, Peter is talking about the attitude of Christ as it relates to two things. First of all, suffering. What's our attitude as we go through hard times? But then also, think about Christ's attitude when it comes to putting aside sin, to not being held captive um, to sin. If you think about Jesus's life, he was all about an attitude that was without compromise when it came to sin. What do we know about his life? We know early in his life, that early in his ministry at least, that the devil took him aside and, and, and tempted him in very specific ways. And Jesus not only stands up to those temptations from the devil, but then throughout the rest of his ministry, we know there would have been all kinds of, of temptations uh, to compromise a little here, to give in a little there, to get off track uh, in that place. And what does Jesus do? Jesus resists temptation and actually goes on and lives a sinless life. So we're to put on that kind of attitude. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of us is going to live a sinless life, although we certainly should strive towards that. We shouldn't just make an excuse, oh, I'll never be sinless, and so I'm going to give in. No, we should strive towards those things. Romans 6 says it like this. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you have, you obey its evil desires. So again, there's kind of this dramatic, no compromise kind of language that describes how the Christian is supposed to approach getting rid of sin in our lives. So Peter says it like this. He says, it's time to move on from your old times. He says, you spent enough time in the past doing what the unbelievers or the pagans do. And then he makes a list and he says, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And it's always funny to me that when you see those sins that, that Peter lists there, and those certainly aren't the only sins, but when you see the ones that he listed there that characterized his culture 2,000 years ago, it's kind of funny to me that quite honestly, it's the same thing in our world today. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. Those same things are there and still tempting and drawing people away. And so Peter says, no, you got to move those things beyond and make those a part of your old life. He says, enough is enough. It's time to move beyond old behaviors. He says, but when you do that, you need to be ready. Because especially if you've been in those things or you've been around certain people or around certain things, people are not going to understand what you're doing. When you say, I've been living this way and I want to make a change, I want to get rid of that in my life, there's going to be people that don't understand that. It actually, Peter says, they will heap abuse on you. But here's what I want to say about that. That has to be okay. That has to be okay for us as believers to get to the point that it's okay if people don't understand us. It's okay if people don't get it and even heap abuse on us. One of the main themes of this book is that we find this living hope in Christ, even through suffering, by living a life that is different, right? We've said that time and time again. Peter says, no, you are a, you're a chosen people. You're a holy nation. You're a people that belong to God. So yeah, people are going to misunderstand. I can't tell you how many times in my life where I've felt like, an outcast, times that I've felt like an outsider for all kinds of different reasons because I didn't see that movie or I didn't watch that show. 
you know, for me, especially someone who's kind of a, a people person, it's not easy for me to, to feel like I don't belong because I didn't go to that place or I didn't participate in that thing. And, and I don't love that. I never relish those times. But it's got to be, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's got to be okay for us to face those things. It's that big of a deal. Peter says, you got to take a militant approach to getting rid of sin. It's that big of a deal. You know, I still remember when I was a a, a young Christian and having to make some of those breaks from old friends and old behaviors and and how hard that was. I'm thinking about kind of the end of my high school days as uh, especially as a senior in high school, kind of running around with like the party crowd in in my school and um, but young in my faith and trying to figure this stuff out. And then by God's mercy, he allowed me to go away to a a Christian college. So uh, my freshman year of college, I started to make some some deeper understandings of Christ and maybe some more commitments through a number of different circumstances, some good, some bad, made these decisions. Hey, I want to start living a different life, including I want to get rid of some of the behaviors that are on Peter's list that he gives to us. And so I had that experience my freshman year of school, and then it came time to come home for the summer and back to all those same old friends and all those same old behaviors. And I remember, I mean, here it is over 30 years ago, and I remember feeling so lonely and feeling like such a, an outcast. And nobody heaped abuse on me. That wouldn't be safe, fair to say. But here's the thing. While I still remember and struggle with that, you guys, that laid a foundation that has been so helpful to me in my faith for, as I said, these last 30 plus years. Because as we go through those things, it allows us to identify with Christ. So he says, you got to take a militant approach to to defeating sin. You got to move beyond old times. The, The whole point of this chapter is time is so valuable. Don't waste your life on those old times. Hey, before we just move on from that, I want to say, because as you think about this idea of, I want to move past old sins, and I went to church, and the pastor said I needed to cut off these old sins. Um, I need to tell you my, pretty much my experience in life, I can't think of hardly any times where especially a significant change or a significant uh, behavior that I got got past, that I did that on my own. I just can't tell you times where I just tried harder and white-knuckled it and, and overcame that sin. For me, it's always been in the context of community and people helping me and sharing it with a brother or sharing it with someone that can, can help, right? The, the message that I'm giving you here today is not just try harder and be better and bad person, get better. No, what I'm trying to say to you today is Christ has so much more for you, so much more. But we've got to work together towards that. One of the the reasons why we are so strong about getting in a community group here at the church or getting in a Bible study or a place where you can have people that are going to encourage you. That doesn't mean you have to share your deepest, darkest sins every single week. But what it means is you've got people that are pulling you in the right direction. Let me also just say here, if you are are in it, because I know all kinds of us are in this situation where it's like, man, I've got this, this thing I just can't overcome. It's been the same thing that I've been struggling with for years, and I can't get past it, and, and it's just a habit or even an addiction or whatever it is. If you have some sort of stronghold that you are just kind of struggling to get over, I want to just 
invite you to, to be a part of our Celebrate Recovery group on Tuesday nights. Tuesday nights at 6.30. Uh, many people are working through addictions to drugs and alcohol, but it's far from that, or far from that only. Um, we say anybody that's got a hurt habit or hang up that is, is keeping you hung up, and that applies to all of us. And it's a welcoming group, and there's that, there's that attitude that says, man, I'm going to get past this no matter what it takes. And that's kind of what, what Peter says here is you got to put behind your old times and leave those things behind. But that's not it. He kind of moves on and he says, you've also got to make the most of these times. You leave behind the old times, but you make the most of these times, which by the way, he says, are the last times. Why do I say that? Let's look at the scripture. Verse seven says this. It says, the end of all things is near. In other words, the end of time, the end of the days is near. Huh. And so Peter says, because the end of the time is near, therefore do these things. Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, those are some great verses. There are a ton of good stuff in there, but let's just start with kind of the the words that Peter uses to open that paragraph, which he says, the end of all things is near. Now, let's just be honest about this, because if you're like me, you might be scratching your head and saying, does anybody else see a problem here, right? Just to remind you, Peter wrote these words, almost 2,000 years ago. How could he say that the end is near? Did he not understand what near meant, or is it something different? And Peter's not alone, right? All of the New Testament writers have the same approach, that, that Christ is coming again, and Christ is coming in a, a, the near future, that we should live a life that is ready for that. So it makes you ask, do do they really understand what soon means? The very closing words of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Well, as I think about this question, and I've wrestled with it, and maybe you have as well, I'm actually really helped by some of the words from a children's book by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote, of course, The Chronicles of Narnia, and in there, there's a great conversation in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, between Aslan, who's the Christ figure, and Lucy, who is one of the, the followers. And it's coming time for Aslan to, to move on to the next place, and Lucy is just so disappointed because she just loves Aslan so much. And And so Aslan says to her, Lucy, don't look so sad. We will meet again soon. And she looks at him and says, Aslan, please, what do you mean by soon? To which Aslan replies, I call all times soon. I call all time soon. You see, Lewis is trying to make the point there that God sees time differently than we do and that God's days are different than our days and and God does see things as soon. In fact, there's kind of a, a technical term, if you will, in the New Testament that talks about the last days. You even could say the end times or the last times or the last days. And that's kind of a technical term that really refers to any amount of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So you had the first coming of Christ and then the last days and then the second coming of Christ. So 
we are essentially living in these last days. It's a long extended last days, uh, but this is the day that we're living in. Now, most of us get really curious about this and want to figure out all the details. We want to know, well, you know, how's it going to happen? How's Christ going to return? When's it going to happen? Who's going to be involved? All these things. And, and we're curious about that, and that is fine. But what we see Peter do here is the same kind of thing that many of the writers do, is they don't focus as much on the details of when and how that second coming is going to happen. They focus on this detail. How are you living in the meantime? right? Because time is valuable. I mean, really the heart of what he's saying here is, are you making the most of your time? Because these are the last times. So are you making uh, the most of those last times? He actually addresses this very issue, and I'm so glad that he does, in Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3. If you don't know this scripture, it's a good one to know. Second Peter 3 verse 8 and 9 says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Don't forget this. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. That's why Lewis can say, have Aslan say, I, I, I call all times uh, near, all, all times soon. Um, time is different for God. So why then is the Lord not coming back? Because the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. It's actually God's kindness, God's patience that is keeping this second coming from coming. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so again, the approach that Peter takes, and and this is the point that, that he is making, is the Lord is patient because he's waiting for his people to do their job to make the most of this time. We are living in the last times and he does not want anyone to perish. And so what are you doing to make the most of your time, Peter says. And as I said, I think Peter's thinking about this in his his own life and he's asking us to think about it as well. Just to be faithful to the text here, he actually mentions a few different things. I think we've covered it one time or another in our study of 1 Peter, all of these already, but, but he brings them up again. And so let's just kind of be faithful to what Peter gives to us here. So the question is, how do I make the most of these last times? If I'm living in these last days, what are some things that I could do? There's three things in those verses that we just read I want to call your attention to. The first one is this, be devoted to prayer. He says, these are the last times, so you got to be devoted to prayer. He says it like this, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Be alert, sober-minded, so that you can pray. And can I just ask some of you Bible junkies out there, um, do those words sound familiar to you? Do those words ring a bell to you at all? Think about them a little bit in the context of who's writing them. Because I think to Peter, they actually would have rang really powerfully. Because I imagine Peter might have been thinking of the words that took place on just one of those nights before Jesus was going to go to the cross. And Jesus goes out to what's known as the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he doesn't go alone. He invites three of his guys. He invites Peter, James, and John to come along with him. And he says, you guys, I'm going to go pray. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to be alert. He doesn't say be sober, but I want you to watch. And I want you to pray. And then Jesus goes up on ahead and and prays for an hour or so. And then he comes back. And what's Peter doing at this point? He is fast asleep. Peter, James, and John, fast asleep. And so Jesus says again, hey, could you guys not just stay alert, sober-minded for one hour? Could you not watch and pray uh, for one 
hour. And he goes and does it again. In fact, three times, the very thing, same thing happens. They fall asleep time and time again. And so now here, Peter is passing on a lesson that he learned from Jesus himself. He's passing it on to us. Now, ironically, when it comes to making the most of our time, at least for me, I usually think of, okay, we've got a short amount of time. We need to be very active, right? We need to do these things. You know, as a church, we need to have these programs. We need to do these events. We need to, you know, do all of these active things. Peter says, to leads off with, because we're living in the last times, the most important thing you can do is to pray, right? Because if you're like me, sometimes you think that it's the activity and the busyness that, that makes the heart of the Christian life. Peter says, no, the heart of the Christian life is not to add prayer on as an extra or a little thing to ask God's blessing. The heart of the Christian life is prayer. The heart of the Christian life is prayer. And we live in the last times. So what should we be doing? Man, be alert. Be sober-minded so that we can pray. Next, he says, be relentless in love. He actually says it like this. Love one another, and love covers over a multitude of sins. I've always loved that scripture, that love covers over a multitude of sins. Again, this is a lesson that Jesus, I'm sorry, that Peter had hammered home uh, to him by Jesus time and time again as he taught them to love, uh, taught them to love. It's the same argument that love covers a multitude of sins that Paul makes. Paul makes kind of the flip side argument of it in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, you can do all kinds of great things. You can, um, you know, have great faith. You can, you know, speak like an angel. You can be generous. You can sacrifice your body. But unless you have love, none of those things even matter. They're like a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. You're doing great stuff, but they're from the wrong motive. Peter actually takes the other approach and he says, yeah. He says, actually, even if you're not you know, doing everything perfect, love helps you to cover over a multitude of sins. So what's that look like? I know in my life, as I think about these things, um, if I'm putting on the attitude of Christ of love towards other people, and I'm checking myself and my, my heart is, is full of love, what happens when someone even sins against me or someone doesn't do something perfect or someone does something bad out there if love is the first thing in my heart, it's going to cover over those things in the way that Jesus covers over my sins. In the sense that when Jesus looks at me making those mistakes, his first thought is patience. His first thought is compassion and kindness. And so when, when love is first in my heart and I see people out there making mistakes, my first thought is not judgment towards them. My first thought is not anger towards them. My first thought is compassion and patience, and love covers over a multitude of sins. And so Peter is saying, these are the last times. You guys, time is short. We don't have time to walk around in bitterness, and unforgiveness, and holding on to grudges, and impatience, and unkindness to people. He says, no, be relentless in love. The other thing about love covering over a multitude of sins is cover over speaks about specifically forgiveness. So Peter understood that Christ's love has, has covered over his sins. Because we talked about that experience where he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and he falls asleep three times. And then, not long after that, Jesus says, hey, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me. He's like, no, I'll never deny you. And he goes out and he denies him. How many times that night? Three times. Three times. He denies he even knows him. He's heartbroken. Well, Jesus goes to the cross it's buried in the tomb and, and raises again on the third day. And one of the first things that Jesus wants to do is he wants to get with Peter again. And he meets with Peter at the Sea of Galilee where they'd met before. And Jesus extends grace to Peter. How many times does he do it? 
three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? In, in other words, every sin that Peter had committed, Jesus is saying, I cover those over by my sacrifice and by my love. You see, love covers over a multitude of sins. And as a Christian, I hope that you've experienced Christ covering over your sins. And if you have, I hope that you're able to show that to other people in the way that your love is towards them. And then finally, he says, uh, as we're living in the last days, one of the things you have to do is you got to use your gifts to serve Christ and to serve others. And I wrote down, because we're made for this. Our theme this year is we're made for this. And, and that's kind of the attitude Peter says. He, says. he says, God's given each of us special abilities. We're living in the last times. So whatever ability he's given you, you've got to use that. If it's preaching, preach. If it's uh, being a blessing to others, do that. If it's uh, helping others, help others. But whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so he'll be glorified. You were made for these times. And then finally, as we wrap this chapter up, P- Peter says, as you think about time, you, you, gotta, you gotta put behind the old times. You gotta make the most of these times that you're in. But then he comes back to a theme that he's, he's dealt with time and time again in this uh, book, which is you've gotta be ready for hard times. You gotta be ready for hard times. Look at uh, these last verses, beginning in verse 12. It says this. It says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. And so can I just ask you, do you believe that to be true? That as we suffer, we can actually be blessed? And and maybe a better question is not, do you believe that? A better question is, have you ever experienced that? Because it's counterintuitive, but I guarantee you, we could have people all over this room stand up and give a testimony like this. It was in the hard times that I drew closest to Christ. It was in the suffering, maybe even times that people heaped abuse on me or I felt like I was was persecuted. It allowed me to identify with the suffering of Christ and I drew closer to him. You know, it kind of reminds me of an old story I heard um, one time about a man who's got like a teenage daughter. And this teenage daughter is um, going through just a number of different hard things. It seems like it's been one thing after another, struggle after struggle, left out, persecuted, all these things. And she says, Dad, I am just fed up with this. I don't think I can go on. And so the dad uh, was very wise and he goes to um, the kitchen. He says, come with me to the kitchen, sweetheart. And he comes to the kitchen and he takes out three pots and he fills these three pots with water and he puts them on and he begins to boil water. And once the water is boiling, he says to her, "Uh, take a look at these things. And he takes some carrots and he puts those carrots in the first pot. And then he takes out an egg or two and he takes those eggs and he puts them in the pot of boiling water. And then he takes um, some coffee ground grounds, mm, smells delicious, uh, from the brewed coffee house uh, right here at church, something just wonderful. He takes those coffee grounds and he sprinkles some of those inside the boiling water. And then he lets her wait for 10, 15 minutes and he comes back. And he says, well, let's see what's happened here. And of course, the carrots under the boiling water and the pressure that they're going through of what's happened to them, they become kind of soft and and mushy. The, the, the boiling water has changed them. 
And then he comes to the eggs, and same kind of thing. It's different. The, this case, the egg's gotten harder, but the, the boiling pressure of, of the water has changed the egg. But then he comes to the one that he put the coffee grounds in, and what does he look? The coffee grounds have actually changed the water into something very useful and wonderful, a beautiful cup of coffee that Peter could have used to help stay awake on that night when <laughs> Jesus told him to stay awake. And obviously that's kind of a simple example, but it begs the question, how are we enduring the suffering that we're going through? Is it, is it pressing us and ruining us? Or are we even in those hard times drawing close to Christ? Well, let me just kind of wrap this up by sharing a little something about this letter of First Peter. Now, I understand some of what I'm about to share with you, or really all of what I'm about to share with you, or at least the timing of it, is, is speculation. Because we don't know the exact date that the book of First Peter was written, um, right? We, we weren't there. We have a lot of details on those kind of things. And actually, First Peter is one of the books that we have uh, a lot of information on. Um, but there is a significant branch of biblical scholarship that says that the book of First Peter, and I would kind of ascribe to this, was written probably around the end of 64 AD, maybe the very beginning of 65 AD. So why is that significant? Well, if you know your history, you know that something very important happened just before that. In fact, in the summer of 64 AD, beginning on July 16th, July 16th, 64 AD, for nine weeks, Rome burned. Rome burned all but to the ground. And most people believe that the fire that burned so much of Rome was actually started by the emperor Nero. Now, we don't know that Nero went out there and, and actually started it himself, but we have historical documents that, that talk about Nero actually, as, as the city burned, um, standing there with, with joy. And, and when people tried to put the, the fire out, that soldiers tried to stop them. Well, the people that lost their homes, the people that lost their businesses and their lives of their loved ones were so upset by this, right? Their, their leader had essentially just let the, the city burn down. And uh, so they start to get upset with them. It's kind of hard in that day to, you know, overthrow a, a, a Caesar. It's not easy to do. But Nero started to feel the, the pressure. And he says, well, we, I've got to do something about this. I need to find someone that I could blame for what took place in our city. And so what does Nero do? He blames the Christians. And he says, the Christians started it. This is what we do know from historian Tacitus writes about this. And so tide starts to turn against the Christians there at the second half of 64 AD, maybe the beginning of 65 AD, and and begins to, to mount the pressure and mount the persecution to reinforce this idea that Nero believed that they did that. He started to, to uh, uh, take Christian people, and he would actually put them, sorry, this is kind of gruesome, he would put them on poles, tie them with ropes, and then they would dip them in while they were still alive into a pitch and then light them on fire. He would use them as torches in his, his, in his imperial garden. And so as you think about how horrendous that is, I want you to just hear the words of First Peter one more time. Verse 12 says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange was happening to you. And the point I want us to see here is that these people knew suffering. They really knew suffering. And Peter says, you don't run away from it. You lean into it. 
Because there, even in the hardship and in the struggle, is where you find Christ. People may treat you as an outcast. That's okay. There in that struggle is where you find Christ and you begin to identify with him. And those people who face those kind of things, what did they consistently do? They remembered what Jesus had gone through. And they remembered the way that Jesus suffered and they remembered the way that Jesus rose again. And I share that with you because we're going to turn right now to a time to remember. In fact, I want to invite our high school students to come on uh, forward. They're going to help serve that uh, communion uh, this morning. But we're going to kind of end our service this morning with a time of communion because communion is a time where we remember uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we talk about this a lot, but it was the night before Jesus was to go to the cross and he gathered together with his disciples and they were celebrating the Passover meal, the time that they remembered that their sins had been covered up by the sacrifice of a lamb. And now Jesus changes the game in an entire way because he takes bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is now my body given for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And then he takes the the cup, and after giving thanks, he says, this is the blood of a new covenant, a new covenant where your sins can be covered over by the love and the grace of what I'm about to do on the cross for you. He says, whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And so Christians, I love this, I love this, around the world and throughout the generations have gathered together around the bread and the cup, and they've remembered Jesus. And they've remembered that though times are hard and though things are difficult, we can stand with him and he stands with us. So uh, as I said, our high school students are going to pass that around. Um, So we'll pray for the bread. And then once the bread comes around, if you would hold on to that, um, we'll take that together. Um, Let me just also say one other thing that I I often say on an occasion like this is here at First Baptist, we celebrate an open communion, meaning you don't have to be a member of this church. But what we see is that this is for the the, the followers of Jesus. This is the people that have, have placed their faith in him. And I share that with you today because if you've never your trust in Jesus. What would keep you from doing that today? He loves you so much. He gave his life for you. He calls you to a new life in him. And it's as simple as in your seat right now saying, Jesus, come into my life. I may not understand it all, but I understand that I need you and I need your forgiveness. And the very first act you could take as a regenerated, born-again person is to take the bread and the cup of Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to do that even as you sit um, right now. Well, I want to invite Alyssa Baum back to come on up. And Alyssa is going to pray for the bread, and then we'll pass it around. Please bow. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the chance that we get to come together with Christians all over the world and all take the, the cup and the bread as a reminder that you died on the cross to save all of us. Uh, thank you for the grace that you've shown us in actually sending your own son to die on the cross for our sins and the protection that we get and the love that we experience from you through that action. So please bless this bread to our bodies and that we can take it in remembrance of you. Amen. I want to invite Logan up to pray for the cup. And again, there's going to be one more song the worship team's going to lead us in. So once you receive that, anytime that that you're ready on your own, I invite you to, to take that. But Logan, thanks for praying for us. We are so thankful today to be gathered in honor and praise the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus did for all of us. And I pray over these cups that that will resemble that same sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, it's been great to be together today. I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been challenged. I hope you've heard the Lord's voice. 
not a voice of anger, but a voice of love, calling us to a deeper purity in him, calling us to go live as his people, calling you maybe to know him for the very first time. So whatever it is, it's my prayer that as we go now filled up on the body and the blood of Christ, that we go to live for him in these days. Um, These are our times. Let's make the most um, of these times. We are made for this. Um, as we're dismissed, let me just say a couple little things. First of all, if you're visiting with us today, um, we have what we call our five-minute party. We've got some fresh-made cookies. They're in my office, which is just to the left of the fireplace. I'd love to meet you in there. Just say a quick hello to you. We're actually uh, men's ministry made lunch, too. So there's tables and chairs out on the, the patio if you wanted to stick around for that. Uh, we encourage you to do that. We have our business meeting tonight at 5, so lots going on. Um, but now let me dismiss us with a word of prayer and ask God's blessing as we go. So God, thank you so much. Your people have gathered together in in your name. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We thank you for the things that we've sung. We thank you for the chance to remember you through this bread and through this cup. And now, Lord, we go to live for you. Help us, Lord, to make the most of these days to the glory of our Father. We love you. We thank you for all you've done for us. And we go in your name, Jesus. Amen.